1: This is Monday Matinee on the Mutual Audio Network. Come on, let's all go to the lobby. Because people are staring at us listening to these shows while we're in the theater.
2: The following audio drama is rated G for general audience.
0: Sonic Summer Stock Playhouse Season 10 Good evening. Ha- have you seen David? I-, I mean, Mr. Alls? Not yet, sir. Oh. This way, please. Oh, oh, my goodness. Well, I I had hoped to meet him here for the inaugural performance. It is the tenth season, you know. I
3: had heard something of that nature, sir. As I said, this way, please.
0: The playhouse looks magnificent. David's really outdone himself. The marquee is is brighter than ever before. The The brass on the doors are sparkling red bellboy uniforms, they're just classic looking, and, and the concession stand is perfect. I'd best slip on in though, maybe he has some seats for us. Just in time, and that's the signal for the show to begin. The place is packed. I can't see him anywhere. Well, maybe during intermission. At least there's a lone seat here. Well, in tonight's inaugural performance, we have Pete Lutz and the Narada Radio Company opening the stage yet again. This time with an encore presentation from their previous stage shows of Fibber McGee and Molly and Candy Matson, Yukon 28209. That last one with an episode called "The Black Cat Caper." <gasps> and here we go for the first performance of the Sonic Summerstock Playhouse 2019. I'm so excited. Well, here's David?
4: I like that. I'm going to do that again. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Hold all applause for the next 30 seconds. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, good good afternoon. Uh, My name is Pete Lutz. I have the honor of directing the fine people you see behind me. In today's presentation, what you'll be seeing and hearing in this first segment are reenactments of two classic programs from radio's golden age. From the 1930s to well into the 1950s, the family radio was to American households what the computer, the TV, and the cell phone are today, a source of news, music, and entertainment. Radio programming ran the gamut from comedy to horror, suspense and mystery to movie adaptations, adventures, westerns, science fiction, and and more, even soap operas. There was truly something for every taste, for every interest. Radio was king in those days and enjoyed nearly 30 years of media dominance until television reared its ugly head in the 1950s. If any of you in the audience have ever heard some of these old programs, then you have entered that world where, just like in a book, all the magic, all the pictures take place in your mind. Now, in my opinion, nobody can make a movie better than what you can see in your own imagination, and that's what we're bringing you uh, today, an opportunity to create a theater in your mind with rustic characters and slick girl detectives with homespun comedy and intrigue and murder. Now, we do have some real comedy, so I want you all to be unafraid to laugh.
5: <laughs> Friday
4: night, people were a little self-conscious, and they, we heard a little, Ee-hee-hee. they didn't want to be the first one to laugh, so don't worry about that today. <laughs> You're gonna be sitting in the dark and nobody's gonna know who left first. <laughs> okay, so let us have it. It's good stuff. Uh, and, and that's just in the first two acts. I'll be back after the intermission to uh, tell you what you can expect in act three. Now we're gonna get started in just a minute, but there are a few things I need to explain. Um, for example, once our on air sign comes on, and let's see that on air sign, so they know what to expect. See that, once that comes on, Let's have no talking amongst yourselves. Uh, Also, any sound of cell phones will cause us to embarrass you horribly. So silence them now, please. Uh, We will stop the show, come out and find you, and uh, give you a stern talking to, and then we'll go back and start the show all over again. Okay, now our applause sign is typical of shows that had live audiences. So when it uh, lights up, you applaud, and when it goes off, you stop applauding. And Teddy, will you demonstrate, please? On my left is Dr. Ross Bernhardt, whose musical genius you'll be hearing throughout the program. Thank you, thank you thanks for paying attention to the sign. Very good. And from this table, you'll be hearing quite a few live sound effects, as well as a number of pre-recorded ones. Uh, We hope you agree that music and sounds are just as important to our plays as the dialogue from the actors, and further hope you enjoy seeing how these sound effects are created. Well, all right, let's get started. On the bill for Acts 1 and 2 are a comedy, Remember to Laugh, and a mystery in that order. The mystery's kind of funny too, I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, thank you so much for joining us here at the beautiful Harbor Playhouse. On with the show.
6: <laughs> the Chain Guard Irish Ale Program with Fibber McGee and Molly. <laughs> Jaspers Brewing, the makers of Chainguard Irish Ale and Mudguard American Lager, present Fibber, McGee, and Molly, starring the Narada Radio Company, and me, Harlow Wilcox. The script is by Don Quinn and Phil Leslie. Music by Dr. Ross Bernhardt. Jaspers wants to remind you that summertime is Chainguard time. If you've got a cool, frosty bottle of Chainguard in your fridge, why not go and get it? It's getting pretty close to sunset in many parts of the United States and the golden amber tones of Chaingard Irish Ale are a perfect match for the colors of the sky right about now. Open up that brown bottle and pour out a cold refreshing chain guard. In a glass, pal, not on the floor. <sighs> Remember the name, Jaspers, for the best ale brewed outside the Emerald Isle. Chain Guard Irish Ale. Jasper's Brewing Company, Sandusky, Ohio. Well, the handyman about the house is at it again. Yes, with a hammer in his hot little hand and a bruise on his fat little thumb. He's fixing a few things. What was that? Winter shade.
7: He's
2: fixing it.
6: Oh. Well, as I was saying, the handyman is at it again as we join Fibber, McGee, and Molly.
4: Ah, there. It's fixed now. For good? For good. Good. Took me a while to get around to it, but now that I've did it, I...
2: Please, now, McGee, not I've did it, say I have done it.
4: Yeah, but you ain't the one that done it. i done it myself, and now that i did it, I don't... McGee? Well.
2: Have you taken a peek at your English lately? Why, it's terrible.
4: What do you mean my English is terrible? I'm the only guy at the Elks Club that can spin a cue ball hard enough to make it change direction in the middle. Oh, oh, you mean my talking English.
2: Why, sure. Your grammar. You're getting very careless. I am? Sure, for instance... You know it isn't correct to say ain't.
4: Yeah, but you know what Will Rogers said. A lot of people that ain't saying ain't ain't eating. And I'm eating, ain't I?
2: Just the same, dearie. It's a bad example. Children hear you and repeat what you say. You know, grown people have to set an example.
4: Well, maybe you're right, kiddo. I'll watch it after this. Good. After all, I studied English in high school, and I ain't the type of guy that he forgets everything that he ever learned. Watch it
5: now.
4: Oh. (sighs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, uh, oh! I say, I'm not the type of individual whom, upon graduation, relegates his education. Dad rat, that dad ratted window shade. If that ain't exasperating, I thought when I fixed it I'd done a good job, but that's the bummest job I ever did. Oh,
2: McGee, that's awful. I know it
4: is. The spring don't catch good, and it ain't ever going to catch good if something ain't done. Should have went to the hardware store and brung home a new spring, and if I knew that's what would have happened, I would have... No. Huh?
2: Will you please repeat that sentence? Sure,
4: I said, I should have went to, I should have gone to the hardware store and brung home, brought home. <laughs> <laughs> My gosh, <laughs> I are getting kind of sloppy, aren't I? Maybe I better go to night school this summer, kiddo. Let him learn me good English all over again. Teach you? Yeah, I certainly am getting careless.
2: <laughs> you don't have to go to night school. I'll keep checking you. Oh. And I have a book on correct usage around here someplace. Maybe the maid knows where it is. Lena, oh, Lena.
8: I think I know exactly the book you mean, honey. Isn't that the one that's called Lay That Adverb Down, Babe, or Who Threw the Infinitive in Mrs. Murphy's Predicate?
2: That's the one, Lena. Mr. McGee wants to read it. He's having a little trouble with his participles. Oh,
8: the poor man. You know, my father had trouble with his participles and they finally had to operate.
4: <laughs> what do they think he had, Lena?
8: $300.
2: No, what did they operate on him for?
8: 275. <laughs>
4: Now we're getting off the subject, Lena. I want to read this book because my wife thinks my grammar needs repairing.
8: Well, it's (laughs) awful important to speak good English, Mr. McGee. What if you should want to go to England sometime? Gosh, you'd feel awful if you just had a point at things you wanted. Like the crown jewels or something. Yes, you know, my brother was going to Ireland once, and he studied garlic for six weeks before he went.
4: Not garlic, Lena. In Ireland, they speak Gaelic. Oh,
8: he knows that now, Mr. McGee. But you know, for six weeks, nobody could get close enough to tell him. (laughs)
5: Did
8: he, uh,
2: uh, did he like
8: Ireland, Lena? Well, he had a pretty rough time in Dublin, honey. You see, he owns a big citrus grove in Arizona, and when they asked him what did he do for a living, he told them he was an orange man. (laughs) He raises walnuts now. Well, I'll try to find your book for you, honey.
5: Well,
4: I'd better get this window shade fixed again, Molly. I can't have that thing scaring the Junior out of everybody. Now let's see.
2: I think you'll be glad you brushed up on your grammar, dearie. It'll help you socially, too.
4: Well, believe me, baby, from now on I watch my language. I ain't gonna... I mean, I ain't... I mean... (laughs) I'm not going to permit myself ever again to lapse into vulgarity.
2: That's my boy. (laughs) And I know you can do it if you try.
4: Ah, sure I can. I'll bet you anything you want to bet that I don't say ain't again today.
2: Well, people told me when I married you that I was a born gambler, so I'll just take that wager.
4: Good. Five bucks, huh, from the first one that says ain't?
2: Five dollars it is. Yeah. I'm going out to help Lena find that book of grammar. Okay. You can't get started on these things too soon, you know.
4: Okay, Tootsie. (laughs) Ah, there goes a good kid. She thinks I don't know the difference between good grammar and bum grammar. (laughs) And I don't think I do either. As long as she don't think I don't think I know I think what she thinks I Come in, thank goodness.
9: Hiya, mister.
4: Oh, hello there, teeny. (laughs) To what, my dear, must we attribute the honor of this unexpected visitation?
9: Well, I was... You feel okay, mister? You talk kind of (laughs) funny.
4: Well, perhaps your little ears aren't accustomed to the sound of good grammar and perfect English, sis. For your information, I've resolved to forego vulgarity in my speech. I'm kicking the friction out of addiction.
9: Oh, gee, that's dirty, I betcha. Yep. My teacher, Miss Eagly, says that slang may be picturesque, but it's too quickly the refuge of the uneducated.
4: Yeah? Well... Oh, (laughs) she did, eh? Mm
9: Mm-hmm, and she, hmm?
4: I said she did, eh? Did what? She said that. Said what? What you said. Who? Your teacher, Miss Oh, I
9: know, that's exactly what she said, I betcha. She says little persons rarely utilize slang.
4: That's right, that's right. Your teacher's cooking on the front burner now, sis. She's hep. As a matter of fact, I got a little bet on with with my wife, sis, that I'll never say A-I-N-T again. I bet her five bucks.
9: I'm pretty good in grammar, too, I betcha. Yeah? You know the eight parts of speech, mister? (laughs)
4: <laughs> Are you kidding, sis? <laughs> Why, that's elementary Oh my gosh, any dumbbell knows the eight parts of speech uh, Lungs, vocal cords, throat, tongue, teeth uh, Teeth, lips, cheeks, and if you talk like I do, the nose
9: Oh, that isn't right, I bet you No? No, it's verb, adverb, noun, pronoun, adjective, interjection, conjunction, and preposition
4: <laughs> May, maybe I better write these down Let's see now Verse, adverse, noun, ad noun, injection, uh, confusion, objective, and proposition. Thanks very
9: much. All right, don't mention it, mister. (laughs) Oh, boy, are you ever in trouble. Yeah? I could give you one other little tip that would help you a lot, too, I bet you. Yeah? Our teacher told it to us.
4: Well, spill it, sis, spill it.
9: It's a little trick, and our teacher says if you learn it real good, you won't hardly ever make any mistakes in grammar at all, I bet you.
4: No kidding. Well, gee whiz, come on, let's have it. What do I have to do?
9: (laughs) Huh? Well, first you close your mouth real tight.
4: Yeah, 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 and then what?
9: That's all. Just hold it. Can't go wrong. So long, Mr.
4: Still think that kid's a midget.
2: Well, are you getting any value out of that grammar book, McGee?
4: Not much. No pictures in it. (laughs) Just words.
2: Well, I suppose it would be just as helpful if I correct you now and then. You won't mind, will you?
4: Mind, I should say not, baby. Anytime my adverbs come loose, you just give me a swift boot in the conjunction.
5: (laughs) Very well.
4: But I say, my dear, I don't suppose one's use of an occasional colloquialism is of sufficient importance to disqualify one. How's that again? I was referring to idiomatic expressions, my dear. The minor variations of language to be heard in geographically separated communities. Constructions typical of definite localities.
2: Look, sweetheart, let's just call the whole thing off, will you?
4: (laughs) No, oh no, I'm serious about this, kiddo. I realize I've been careless with my language. I'm making a genuine effort.
2: Well, all right. But if I'd known what I was getting into, I'd never- Enter. Oh, it's Dr. Gamble McGee. Hello, doctor.
1: Uh, Good day, my dear, and how are you, Smudgepot?
4: Smudgepot, sir. I trust you will not take it amiss, dear doctor. If I should point out the use of slang by a person of education is an indication of deterioration to an individual of professional eminence, the utterance of gutter expressions is somewhat appalling.
1: Uh, May I sit down? May do, doctor. Uh, I had a patient once who talked like that—a professor. He had six university degrees, and was shot while playing the piano in a beer garden.
4: Well, it was jolly good of you to stop in, Doctor. Molly, leave us have some tea and sandwiches.
2: Lettuce, McGee.
4: Yes, leave us have some lettuce sandwiches, and a spot of tea, too.
2: Would you like some tea, Doctor? It won't be a bit of trouble.
4: Very stimulating, old chap. Quite a tonic, full of tonic acid, you know. Uh, it's
1: tannic acid. Now, will you stop yammering like a stock company Englishman? Molly, I have seen this tenderized ham strike more poses than a Gus Son acrobat. <laughs> but this one has me baffled. Who does he think he is today, Lord Eager
4: Beaverbrook? Oh, come now, my good medico. <laughs> Surely when one makes a conscious effort to improve oneself, leave us give a little credit to him.
1: Uh, What were those last words
4: again? I said, leave us give to him a little credit.
1: You shouldn't say leave us, McGee. Oh, yes he should. And I think I will. Good day, folks.
4: I say something wrong?
2: Yes, pet. Leave us do this or that is not correct. Huh? It should be let us, or allow us, or permit us.
4: Oh, I see. Well, anyway, I haven't said that certain word. You mean? A-I-N-T. I
2: I know, and I'm proud of you, McGee. If everybody was...
4: Dad rat, that dad ratted window shade. If that isn't the most exasperating thing... I thought I had that fixed. I'd done it four times, and I- you did
2: it four times? Yeah, I
4: did it four times. And if anybody thinks I'm gonna spend all my time messing around with a screwdriver and a hammer trying to fix it, then- Hello,
6: Molly. Hiya, pal.
2: Hello, Mr. Wilcox.
6: Good day, my boy. The door was closed, so I walked right in. Oh,
2: uh, we've left it open. <laughs> We'd have left it open, but you might have thought we were out.
4: That's the silliest conversation I ever heard, and I've heard plenty of them in 12 years.
2: Anything on your mind, Mr. Wilcox?
4: Not a thing, Molly. Not a thing. Nice of you to stop in, my boy. Have a cigar. No thanks, pal. I've got one. You got two? Thanks. I'll smoke it after dinner. Well, what do you think of the crisis in Indochina, old chap? Do you think the territorial aims of the provincial government will predominate the military spearhead? Or is it your opinion that certain powers will subsidize a mandate, or neither?
6: What are you talking about?
2: He's just exercising his English, Mr. Wilcox. This is be kind to participles week around here.
4: I decided I was talking much too sloppy.
6: Well, I wish you luck, pal. There's nothing like good grammar to make an impression on people.
2: My very words, Mr. Wilcox.
6: Yeah, but you can get into trouble with ordinary words, too. How's that?
4: (laughs) Well, remember, Molly, remember that little town of Bell back in Illinois?
2: Bell. Yes. Bell, Illinois! Oh, sure I do. Where they have the hat factory. Yeah,
4: yeah. Made wonderful hats down there. Sold like hotcakes. In fact, they went so fast that everybody used to say that things went like a hat out of Bell. (laughs)
6: Ordinary words, but I always get spanked for saying them. I see what you mean. Well, I've got to be pretty careful with my speech, too, you know? Minute I make a mistake, Sandusky shoots me a telegram that curls my hair.
2: Oh, so that explains it. I always thought you had a natural wave, Mr. Wilcox.
6: (laughs) I don't believe I ever
4: heard you pull any bum grammar, Junior.
6: No, I did once, long time ago. Yeah? It was awful. Mm-hmm. I said something about how Jasper's Chain Guard Irish Ale is the finest ale that money can buy for taste, value, and satisfaction. Nothing wrong with that. No, and then I said it not only provides the crisp, clean taste of Irish hops, but also gives you a sense of being back in old Erin.
2: What was wrong with that?
6: Well, nothing so far, but listen to this. Uh huh. I said for delightful taste for the sparkling beauty of the dark brown bottle and golden amber ale color enjoy Jasper's Chain Guard always. Where was the bum grammar in the next line? Oh. <laughs> when I said invite your friends and loved ones over often and serve Jasper's Chain Guard Irish ale every time to always have an inviting home. Get it? No. I split an infinitive. No. <laughs> I said to always have instead of always to have or to have always. Oh, Hopsey, this is terrible. I'm surprised at you. But pal,
4: I was only That's enough, that's enough. The water is under the
5: dam. Oh, dearie, he said that was
2: a long time ago. Please,
4: my dear, he has abused our hospitality. Anybody that would split an
6: infinitive would
4: steal the silverware.
6: I know. I know, I agree with you, pal. You know what I'm going to do?
2: Steal the silverware?
6: No. No, go home.
2: Harsh, dearie. Splitting an infinitive is not a hanging offense, you know. Well, I'm not the
4: type of guy that is too quick to always condemn a man.
2: Yeah, but you just split one yourself.
4: What? I did? Gosh, is it that easy? I've been too hasty with Harlow, I guess.
2: Well, I hope he forgives you. Yeah. Otherwise, we'll never see him again. At least till next Tuesday. Pull that shade down again, will you, McGee? Sure. It looks terrible. Sure.
4: Well, it looks like you wouldn't win that bet, eh, kiddo? I haven't said that word. No,
2: and Mother's proud of you. I never thought you could do it.
4: (laughs) Oh, my English is okay when I stop to think. It used to bother me when I was a young fella, but it never gives me no trouble now.
2: Never gives me any trouble, McGee.
4: You either? Well, it shouldn't bother anybody if they just stop to...
2: Come in. Oh, McGee, it's Mr. Wimple. Come in, Mr. Wimple.
4: Hi, Wimp. Hello, folks.
2: chair, Mr. Wimple.
3: No, thank you, Mrs. McGee. Uh, I can't sit down. Too busy, Wimp? No, too bruised, Mr. McGee. Sweetie Face, that's my big old wife. Sweetie Face spanked me this afternoon. I was was naughty.
2: Heavenly days, Mr. Wimple. She
7: actually spanked
3: you? Yes, but I fooled her. (laughs) I stuck my bird book in the back of my britches. (laughs) Your what, Wimp? My bird book. After my spanking, I found that two blackbirds, a bobolink, and a Blue Jay, were badly bad.
2: But uh, what brought this all on, Mr. Wimple? What'd
3: you do? Oh, I guess I was a little bit mischievous, Mrs. McGee. Yeah? <laughs> I I never should have put that turtle in her girdle.
5: <laughs>
3: my gosh, Wimp, you put a turtle in her girdle? Yes. <laughs> I didn't know it was the one she was gonna wear this morning. <laughs> Well, a friend of mine sent it to me, Mrs. McGee. He borrowed my car for a long trip, and several days later I got a package and a letter that said, Dear Wallace, your car turned turtle. Take good care of it. Regards. Charlie. <laughs> Wasn't that ridiculous? And when the mailman delivered it, he made a terrible mistake. What did he do, Wim? Well, he was just handing me the package when Face walked in, and the mailman said... Maybe your mother would like to sign for it, Sonny. Oh, Oh, that was bad. bad. A Paul was cast over the whole room.
2: Really, Mr. Wimple?
3: Yes, Paul. That's our man-man's name. (laughs) Well, goodbye.
4: Hey, Molly. Yes, dearie? There's still a lot of things about grammar and English that I don't understand. Such as what? Well, I'm writing a letter to the House Committee of the Elks Club, see? Yes? I'm putting in a complaint because last Wednesday and last Thursday, while I was sleeping in a chair, somebody gave me a hot foot both days. So? Well, I don't know if I should say someone gave me two hot foots or two hot feet.
2: Well, that's simple, dearie. Just say Wednesday I was given a hot foot, also Thursday. Oh,
4: good. Then that's the way I'll do it.
2: Come in. Oh, it's Mayor Latruvia. Good day, your honor.
7: Good day, Molly.
4: Hello, McGee. How do you do, Mr. Mayor? Decent of you to stop by, you know. One is always glad to welcome one's old friends when one's old friends drop in... on one. Uh,
5: uh, How
4: true.
2: If himself here seems a bit stuffy today, Mr. Mayor, don't worry about it. He's improving on his English.
4: Really? That's very interesting, McGee. Yeah, and I can do it, too. Lots of dumber guys than I am have learned their self-grammar. Taught themselves, McGee. How could they have taught themselves if they hadn't learned themselves first? Very good point, Gary. As a matter of fact, I and Molly have got a little bet on Latriv. Five bucks from the first one that says A-I-N-T. <laughs> well, I wish you both luck. I remember I had a little trouble in school with English myself. You did, Latrive?
7: Yes, somehow or other, I couldn't seem to keep my tenses straight. Your what, Mr. Mayor?
4: My tenses. <laughs> oh, you don't mean tenses, boy. You mean tense. Tent is singular, you see, and the plural is tense. Oh,
2: yeah. Wonder
7: you had trouble with your English if you went around talking that way.
4: <laughs> yeah, I suppose you read bookses, smoked pipeses, and drank cokeses all day. I
7: beg your pardon, I merely said. Say,
2: I, what I... were you doing with the tent in school anyway, Your Honor? Playing Indian.
4: He was probably in military school, Molly. Oh. I was not in military, Mool. Huh? Uh, military
7: school. The, the, the tentses I had trouble with were not tents to live in. They were...
4: The tent was never built that was fit to live in, Latrive. I remember the trouble we had with them pup tenses in the First World War. The Big War. Uh
2: Pup tents were the ones where you slept
7: with your head out in the rain and your dogs in the tents, weren't they?
4: They were so useless. Please,
7: please, I'm not talking about pup tents. I simply meant... No
4: matter what kind you meant, Latrive, they're all trouble. I mind one time, the the pole fell down in on the mess tent. (laughs) Right at chow time, the pole fell down in on the mess tent. Of all the messes I ever saw, that mess in the mess tent was the worst no, messed up no, mess I ever... No, no,
7: Please, please. This is ridiculous. It is? Yes. Let
4: me start all over.
7: Go ahead,
2: Your Honor. It'll probably come out the same way,
7: but try it.
4: Sure, we'll go along with the boy. We're game.
7: All right. Now, when I was in grammar school, some of my English exercises gave me a little trouble. Made you sore did they-
4: what made me sore? The exercises you took in English. What were they, setting up exercises? Maybe you're muscle bound. Maybe you got a Charlie I horse. I don't
7: Maybe. have a Charlie bound muscle horse. Huh? I, I didn't say anything about exercising canvas like tents. Well, you said. Uh, Canvas tents. When I said the fast you, you tense, said that. the, the, the fast pence, I, 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 you, you wouldn't want to pup down no, at the dag tent. I, uh, dragged out of the pup tents. No, Pense, I. tents. tense. tense. I merely said my past trouble was on torture pences. You, you, you said, um... And... Pence, no. I, I never... Uh, I... You... you. Uh-huh. Oh.
4: Uh-huh. <laughs> McGee? Yes, boy?
7: I'd like to know one thing. What is it, Your Honor? How did he ever
4: get
2: the... <laughs> That right, 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 that ain't the most successful!
7: Molly!
4: What? You said the word, Molly. Oh. You said A I N T. Five bucks, please.
2: Here you are, money well spent. Huh? Oh, what a relief.
4: (laughs) You ain't kidding, kiddo. Here's your dough back. It ain't worth the strain. (laughs) Ain't it the truth?
6: This is Harlow Wilcox speaking for the makers of Jasper's Chain Guard Irish Ale, inviting you to be with us again next week at this same time. Your Narada Radio Company players were Phil Boynt Studge as Fibber McGee, Jackie Ayers as Molly and Teeny, Eileen Corpus as Lena, Gene Giggy as Doc Gamble, Dana Gonsalves as Mr. Wimple, Michelle Barnett as Mayor Latrivia. And I'm Alan Clower as Harlow Wilcox.
4: You know something, Molly? I've been checking my grammar against this book, and I'm a very superior guy.
2: Well, good for you.
4: You betcha. This book lists 40 common errors that most people make at some time or other. And? I got 67 so far that I make every day. I'm way above the average.
5: Oh, fine. <laughs>
4: Good night. Good
2: night, all.
6: Friends, you've all heard tell of certain beer brands that age their product in old oak bourbon barrels, right? (laughs) And some that might brag of aging their beers in old sherry casks. Well, Jaspers was at the forefront of a similar practice way back in 1902 when we first brewed and bottled in Sandusky. We can state with much pride that our Mudguard American lager is aged in discarded steel Budweiser kegs. Yes, that's right. And our prize-winning Chainguard Irish ale is aged in old rodeo clown barrels. <laughs> now, some may claim that practice might make our ale taste a little funny, but we know you won't mind after the first six-pack. <laughs> That's Chain Guard Irish Ale and Mudguard American Lager, brewed with pride by Jasper's Brewing Company, Sandusky, Ohio. Our program was adapted for live performance from the original 1947 radio broadcast and directed by Pete Lutz. New commercials were written by Pete Lutz from an idea by Dana Gonsalves. Music was by Dr. Ross Bernhardt. Stay tuned for Candy Matson, Yukon28209, coming up right after this brief word. This is BBS, the Bumbly Broadcasting System.
10: Hi friends, This is Jerry and Tamara of the Narada Radio Company with a special offer from one of our sponsors, Crazy Crambone's Discount Warehouse in Sandusky, Ohio. Crazy Crambone is offering a truly nutty bargain at the old Discount Warehouse. He's just received a shipment of something that will appeal to owners of Chinese restaurants who are looking to save money or just to people with an unusual sense of humor who want to entertain their dinner guests approximately 17 cases of slightly irregular fortune cookies. (laughs) Um,
11: uh, uh, What makes these fortune cookies slightly irregular is the actual fortune messages inside, which seem to have been placed there by um, this disgruntled employee of the factory that made them. (laughs) I have a few samples here. Um, uh, You will soon be hit by a number five bus and spend several weeks in the hospital. <laughs> uh, another one says, um, Love will always find the person sitting across from you on a number five bus. Okay, um, and this last one, which reads, A coworker will steal your ideas and use them to gain a big promotion. So, uh, lots of laughs there, obviously. Uh, Yeah, um, so if you're in the market for approximately 70 cases of these slightly irregular fortune cookies, hurry over to Crazy Cranbones Discount Warehouses, Sandusky, Ohio, and pick them up today.
12: Hello, UConn two eight two oh nine. Yes, this is Candy Matson. Okay.
11: The Bumblebee Broadcasting System presents the Narada Radio Company in Candy Matson, Yukon 28209.
12: Well, that was a pleasant afternoon, Rembrandt, dear. Pleasant but unprofitable. As many
13: times as I've been to the horse races, I never seem to have a gumption to quit when I'm ahead. Like
12: Damon Runyon once said, horse players die broke. I'm also reminded of that old song, horses don't bet on people. But the scenery was lovely. I
13: enjoyed it.
12: Yes, Golden Gate Fields is a beautiful park. Why are you
13: headed up into the Berkeley Hills, Candy?
12: I wanted to avoid traffic on the East Shore Highway this time of afternoon. And two, I just had a thought. Only for you. So few people have them anymore. What might the idea be? I know a cozy little spot to eat over in Lafayette. How would you like to have dinner there instead of town?
13: Splendid girl. Sounds delightful. My, this is rather foreign country up this way.
12: Yes, the real estate boys haven't caught up with it yet. Wait till they see the results of the recent census. Homes will be sprouting all over those hills like the poppies are now. Help! Help me! Please. What was that? It came from back there, Candy. Must be from that house.
13: It's the only one around here. Come back!
12: Help. Help. Yes, it is that house. Let's find out what this is all about, Ducky.
14: Now there's a fine start for our cozy dinner in Lafayette. Could only happen to Candy Matson. San Francisco's well-known private investigator. Whether she's at home in her penthouse on Telegraph Hill or at the races in Albany, it makes no difference. Trouble always seems to pop up its dangerous head. And this was no exception. Quiet afternoon, watching the wrong horses finish in the right positions, then driving along a road on top of Berkeley's skyline, and out of the dusk, a man's cry for help. That cry led to a maze of events that would have done justice to an Alfred Hitchcock movie. That's where I came in. I'm Detective Ray Mallard of the San Francisco Police Department. Want to hear what developed after the man called for help? Well, here's the gal to tell you. Candy Madsen.
12: What was that the man said about a maze of events? Well, just to pick a word at random, it was Murder. More things happened later, but what happened firster was that I stopped the car, turned around, and drove back to the house where the man had called out. Walking in, we saw by an open window a man on his knees. Thank you. Oh, thank you. It's a heart attack. Quick, Rembrandt, help me get him on the couch. Surely. Uh, 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 (sighs) uh. Then we'll get his collar open and loosen his tie. There we are.
15: My wife. Gone for doctor.
12: Good. How long ago?
15: Don't know. Ten minutes, maybe. Can't wait. Too late. Here, take this
3: envelope. Deliver it.
12: Deliver. Take it easy. Don't try to talk. Save all the strength you possibly can. It's important. Must
13: talk. Must... (sighs) I've
12: got his tie off, Candy. Yes. Never mind his collar, though. It won't do him any good. Not now.
13: Candy, you don't mean he's... He's
12: dead. I'm afraid so. I can't feel any pulse.
13: This is a fine kettle of smelt. How do we
12: explain this, dove? The only way to explain it. Just tell what happened the way it happened.
13: Who'd believe that we were just driving along a lonely road, heard this chap call for help, went to his aid, then had him expire gracefully half a minute
12: later. It's too bad, Candy. The truth is always hard to swallow, Rembrandt. Well, this is cozy. What do we do now? Leave. Report it to the police and be on our way. There's nothing we can do by hanging around.
13: We could stay and console
12: the widow when she returns. No, I hate scenes like that. She'll cry, then I'll cry, and I'll feel miserable for a week. Come on, ducky, let's go. You aren't forgetting the envelope, are you? No, that was the request of a dying man. I'll follow through with it. Yeah! Oh, Rembrandt, what's wrong? It startled
13: me. A black cat. Just ran across the doorstep in front of us.
12: Now, don't start a thing like that. A cat's a cat, whether it's black, green, or beige. It's only the kind that walk on two legs that make me worry.
5: Well,
13: start worrying, then. Here comes one of the males of the species.
12: Oh, pardon me? Certainly. Are you the doctor?
6: Yes, that's right.
12: I'm afraid you're just a bit late, doctor. The gentleman in there is dead.
6: What? Jerome, dead? Oh, the fool. I warned him.
12: I'm not being curious, you understand. But where's the gentleman's wife?
6: Why, inside, isn't she?
12: No. Just before he died, he said she'd gone to get you.
6: She called me on the phone. I assumed it was from the house here. Oh, hell. I just knew something like this would happen. It was that black cat.
12: Oh, ducky, come, come. By the way, doctor, what's the gentleman's
6: name? Moreland. Jerome Moreland. Wait just a moment, young lady. If you don't know him, what were you doing inside? That's a good question. Answer the good doctor, Candy.
12: Well, my friend here and I were driving up the road when we heard a Mr. Moreland cry out. So we came back. We lifted him onto the couch, tried to make him comfortable. But it was too late. He died in less than 30 seconds.
6: Hmm. Come along with me, will you please? First, I want to examine Jerome. Then I'll have to have some information from you for my reports.
12: We went back inside the house and the doctor busied himself with whatever doctors busy themselves when they examine a corpse. When the medic finished asking us his questions, he excused us. We gave up the idea and did dinner in Lafayette, drove back across the Bay Bridge and ate at a place in Chinatown. And all the time I had one tiny, gnawing thought in the back of my head. What had happened to Moreland's wife? When one's husband is dying, you don't stop off for a pound of hamburger and call the doctor from the butcher shop. After dinner, Rembrandt, who had been silent, spoke up.
13: Dove, I can't place my finger on the exact cause, but... I have a slight touch of the vapors.
12: Oh, Ducky, I'm sorry.
13: It was either the sight of that poor man dying on the couch or the tomato chow yuck. In either case, I'd like to get back home, attack the aspirin bottle, and retire to me downy. Would you be a love and drive me to me domicile?
12: Certainly, dear. I've got a little errand I want to run anyway.
13: Oh, girl, are you going to entangle yourself in this Berkeley thing?
12: You know me and my hunches, Rembrandt. Something smells about this deal. I don't like it. In the first place, I'm not too sure about that doctor. The more I think about it, the more it strikes me that he gave the late Jerome Moreland a very amateurish going over.
13: I noticed
12: that, too. That was a family home, Ducky. It showed huge, great gobs of loving care. If Moreland's wife was that kind of a homemaker, she wouldn't just run out of the house and call the doctor and forget to come back.
13: I admit, it does sound suspicious. It's that cat, believe me.
12: (laughs) Oh, you do have a touch of the vapors. Come, lamb, I'll take you home. You're becoming delirious. I drove Rembrandt to his place on California Street, then over to Kearney to the Hall of Justice. It was just possible that my number one boy, Inspector Ray Mallard of San Francisco Homicide, might still be on the job homiciding.
14: Well, Cupcake, what brings you around to these dank dungeons?
12: Not love, not at this late hour.
14: If that isn't just like a suspicious foot flat. Girl drops around to say hello, and right off the bat, she gets a verbal left right in the chin. You've got to admit, Candy, the thing looks phony. Social calls are usually made a bit earlier in the evening.
12: Okay, you've got me. I'm here on business. You
14: see? If you'd admitted it in the first place, could have saved five lines of dialogue. (laughs) What's the pitch?
12: I just met a doctor.
14: How thrilling. That doesn't happen to just anyone.
12: Said doctor affected me like aphys.
14: Now What's the Aphis on the Aphis?
12: It has something to do with a gent who died under my very nose, Mallard dear.
14: That's occupational with you. I suppose we start from the beginning. Then I can sort of sort the facts.
12: Do you know a man by the name of
14: Jerome Moreland? Jerome Morland? Are you kidding? He's merely one of the world's outstanding scientists.
12: Well, shake hands then with a hand that unloosened his tie. He up and died this afternoon.
14: What? Well, that's terrible, Candy.
12: Mallard, dear, I've never seen you so quite upset.
14: It's going to upset the entire country. Dr. Moreland was a very vital cog in the United States' international security. I'm afraid I don't
12: understand.
14: You will when you start reading page one in tonight's papers. Come, come, Candy. You're better than that. Moreland. Moreland. Doesn't it mean anything to you? Nope. Sorry. He's the man who played one of the leading roles in developing the A-bomb. Contributed largely to the H-bomb, from what I've heard. He's working on something currently that would have outmoded both of them. Oh, sure. Now I remember.
12: He made the cover of Time about a month ago, didn't he?
14: That's the one.
12: Imagine. And I was there when he died.
14: What a shame. Moreland meant an awful lot to the security of this country. He's one of the colossal brains of the world. Of course, you'll be called for the inquest, Candy.
12: Oh, sure. That I know. After all the data the doctor put down, I'm going to be the star.
14: Who was the doctor? What? His name. What was the doctor's name?
12: Mallard, and this you won't believe. I forgot to ask.
14: and you make a living as a private eye. Oh, Candy, give it up.
12: Marry me, and I will. Uh,
14: Let's not change the subject.
12: One of these days, one of my hints is going to seep through that sponge-like head of yours. In the meantime, thanks for the information on Jerome Moreland.
14: Are you leaving, Cupcake?
12: Uh-huh. I've gone as far as I can here. That supersonic barrier of yours, Mallard, is a little hard to crack. As I left the Hall of Justice, the fog was oozing in through the Golden Gate. The lights of the city shot up, and in turn were sent back from the fog bank, giving the town a fluorescent look. I went home, hit the sack, and had a fistful of drinks for myself. Mallard was the star. In color. The fade out came with me in Mallard's arms, just as the bell rang and saved me from going another round. It was nine o'clock the following morning. Hello, Yukon 28209? Miss Candy Matson. That's right.
10: Sorry to wake you. This is the coroner's office in Berkeley.
12: Oh yeah, I forgot about this.
10: You'll have to appear at the inquest of Dr. Mm-hmm. Jerome Moreland this afternoon at one o'clock, this office.
12: Okay, I'll be there, thanks. Quite all right. That definitely was the end of Mallard in Color. So I got up, showered, dressed, and started applying the lipstick. And that's when I remembered the letter the good Dr. Moreland had entrusted to me. The envelope was addressed to Hans Middlestad, Snug Harbor Hotel, Embarcadero, San Francisco. A short while later, I picked up Rembrandt and drove over to the coroner's office in Berkeley. I testified, then Rembrandt, then the doctor we had bumped into the day before. Still, no Mrs. Moreland. That, to me, was the major issue in the whole deal. The only opening left was Hans the Snug Harbor Hotel on the waterfront in San Francisco. That's where I went. Who? Stand to the windward and I'll do it again. Middlestadt. Hans. Middlestadt. I don't believe we have anyone registered under that name. Of course, (laughs) I just got back from vacation. Well, if you can get your mind off the Whispering Pines, would you take a look in your book? Yes. Of course. Mm. I'm terribly sorry. There doesn't seem to be any Middlestadt listed. One moment, Buster. What's that? Right there. Oh. I must have overlooked that. That is Middlestadt, isn't it? It doesn't spell smikey. Now, come on. What's the room number? Mm, Look, miss, why don't you beat it? You're just leading with your chin. It's my chin, and I'll lead with it if I want to. Are you acquainted with Herr Middlestadt? Acquainted with him? Of course. Not only that, I have a very important letter for him. Mm. Well, why
3: didn't you say so? Room 332. To the left, after you get out of the elevator. (laughs)
12: The clerk lifted an eyebrow toward the north, indicating where the elevator was. I found it, the elevator, not the eyebrow, and hoisted myself to the third floor. A few steps around a dingy corridor and I was face to face with room 332. I knocked. I cooled my heels for about 10 seconds and knocked again. Still, no answer, so I tried the door. The blinds were down and I was in almost a dusky darkness. I fumbled around for the light switch and clicked it on. What I saw wasn't pretty. The body of what had been an attractive woman in her early forties sprawled out on the floor on the other side of the bed. It only took one look to tell me that she was dead. A set of finger marks around her neck told me how it had been done. And another look around her neck told me who she was. A locket, with the name inscribed in back, Ruth Moreland. I'm glad I got that far, because that's when the lights went out. Oh! I floated through space for an eon or two. Then vaguely, something came into audible focus of a voice. A familiar voice. Come on. Yes, it was Mallard. At first he sounded as though he were coming from a deep well. Hmm. So that's where I was.
14: Then his voice changed. Been out long enough. Come on, cupcake. Get with it. I'm tired of having to hover over you like a duenna. So you've got a lump on your head. Got normal work to do.
12: The lights came back on. Mallard stopped spinning around and I saw where I was. A cot in an emergency hospital.
14: That's the girl.
11: Hi Mallard, what
12: happened?
14: Supposing you tell me?
12: I would if I could, but I can't. I know I got smacked though.
14: That's for sure. You could use that knob on your head for a bookend. How did I get here? Seems whoever tapped you on the noggin didn't want it to take permanently. Room clerk at a joint called the Snug Harbor phones the police to come and pick up one limp tomato named Candy Matson, and one very dead tomato name of Ruth Moreland. Did you have anything to do with Mrs. Moreland's ugly finish, Candy? You know me better than that, Mallard. Answer me this, then. Could that hotel clerk have given you the wallop?
12: Might, but I don't think so.
14: I was just wondering. He had shifty eyes, like the 49er backfield. Okay, so it looks like somebody went through your purse. Candy, look at me. Best you can. That's a girl. Now, do you have any information somebody could be after? Uh Uh-huh. It's not in your purse.
12: Mallard, have you been going through my purse, too?
14: Ah, Don't get so excited. It was only in the line of duty.
12: Don't you realize that a woman's purse is private domain?
14: Not when the owner of said purse is laid out unconscious on a hotel room floor. Now... Answer my question. Do you have any information someone could be after?
12: I already did. I'll repeat the answer, uh-huh.
14: Like I said before, it's not in your purse. Where is it?
12: I have it on me.
14: Oh? <laughs>
12: Much safer than a purse.
14: Uh, yeah, what's it all about, Candy?
12: Honestly, Mallard dear, I can't tell. I really don't know.
14: What's the information? I don't know. Who killed Ruth Moreland?
12: I don't know.
14: (laughs) You know, Candy, sometimes our friendship makes my job awfully tough. Okay, so we don't know nothing, and the chief is terribly unhappy about this whole thing. Take my advice. Don't go on any long road trips.
12: I wobbled to my feet, and Mallard took me back down to the waterfront, dropping me off in my car. Now, I was more than just curious. If someone tagged my head with a sap, I wanted to know what the reason was. So throwing etiquette out the window, I reached down inside where I was keeping the letter and opened the envelope. Addressed to Hans Middlestadt, it read, too many after formula 12K have decided on this method. In case my heart goes bad, you will receive this. Look for caller on Jake. Keep up the good work, Jerry. Now, where was I? Look for a collar on Jake. Jake who? What sort of collar? (sighs) In spite of the Gene Cooper symphony going on in my head, I wanted to know more. The only chance of getting more was to revisit the late Dr. Jerome Moreland's house in Berkeley. Naturally, it was locked, but I knew a way to get in. I probed about, expecting nothing, and found just that. Nothing. The back door led out onto a terraced patio where I had stopped short. There, under a tree, was a small boy sitting with a cat in his lap. The same cat I imagined that had frightened Rembrandt. <coughs> well, hello there, Sonny. Hello. What's your name?
8: Tommy. What's yours, lady? Candy. That's a pretty name. Yes, it <gasps> is.
12: Very pretty. Oh, I hope I didn't startle
10: you. Well, yes, you did, frankly. My apologies. I was looking for my son. He must have climbed over the fence. I didn't expect to find him here, now that both Dr. and Mrs. Moreland had passed away. Tommy, where have you been? Right here, playing with the cat. Yes, uh, of course. Here, let me have the cat. That's a good lad. You come right home now. Mommy says that dinner is almost ready. Again, I'm sorry, miss. I hope I didn't frighten you. Come right home, Tommy.
12: That's a pretty cat, Tommy. Have you had him long? Oh, he's not mine. He lives here with Mr. Moreland. Oh, I see. Well, don't you think you'd better go along with your daddy? Oh, that's not my daddy. What? Who is he, Tommy? I don't know. I never saw him before. (laughs) What do you know about that? Listen to me, Tommy. What's the cat's name? Jake. Thanks, Tommy. I'll see you later. You've got one gross of popsicles coming with my thanks. Sometimes I'm a dope. I should have sniffed a rat when the guy didn't question my presence in Moreland's yard. Now he had a head start on me. He disappeared around the corner of the house and I followed. I shimmyed over to the other side of the fence just in time to catch a glimpse of my man with the cat clutched firmly under his arm. He was running down the back lot out to the front where he obviously had a car waiting. I saw I'd never be able to head him off on foot, so I ran back the way I came in, found my car, and whipped around to the other street. Empty. It was a one-way street, so I followed, taking what I thought would be the same course as my quarry. I must have gone about 15 blocks, when all of a sudden I was confronted by one, a crowd, and two, a couple of very messy looking cars embracing each other head on. Oh <laughs> my Officer,
11: Take a look, I shouldn't have to explain that. Quite a tangle.
12: Anyone hurt? Yeah, the lady in the sedan is pretty badly banged up. The guy in the coop is dead. The guy in the... that's him! What?
5: Do
14: you know him?
12: I... no. Uh, was there any sign of a cat? A black cat with white paws? Have you been drinking, lady? No, officer. That man had a cat with him. I haven't seen any cats and I was only a block away when I heard the crash. Then Jake's bound to be in the vicinity. Excuse me, officer, I've got to see a cat about a man. (laughs) I got out of the car, left the officer with his mouth open and arches flap. Thinking the way a cat might, I was able to find Jake in five minutes. I picked him up, got back in the car, and drove over to the Hall of Justice in San Francisco. I found Mallard sitting at his desk going over some papers. I walked in, plopped Jake the cat right in front of him.
14: What the? Get that thing out of here, Candy.
12: What's the matter, Mallard, dear? Is the great, bold, foot-flat scared of
14: cats? It, it doesn't look dignified. Get him out of here.
12: Uh-uh. I've got a hunch Jake is a very valuable cat. He belonged to the late Dr. Jerome Moreland.
14: What are you up to, Candy?
12: See that collar around Jake's neck? It has a little container on it. Prior to open, Mallard, I think we'll find something.
14: Hmm, it's a solid little thing. Wait a minute. There we are. Wait a minute.
12: Come here, Jake. On the floor, Kitty. That's it. What's inside the tube, Mallard?
14: Well, what do you know about that? Microfilm.
12: And five will get you 10 that they contain the formula for Dr. Moreland's latest development.
14: Okay, Cupcake, start unraveling the mystery.
12: Well, this is going to sound incredible, but it's true, so help me. Just before Dr. Moreland died on the couch, he gave me an envelope addressed to Hans Middlestadt, Snug Harbor Hotel Embarcadero, San Francisco waterfront. That, if you recall, is where I got smacked over the head by Herr Middlestadt himself. Maybe he'd read in the paper about me being President Moreland's demise. Maybe he'd figure Moreland had given me something to pass on, So he whacked me on the beanie and went through my purse.
14: Uh, I'd like to have a talk with that guy.
12: Mm, It's too late, Mallard. He's busy atoning for his sins. He was killed this afternoon in a car crash in Berkeley.
14: Oh, that saves me a spot of work. I don't like guys who go around slugging my favorite private eye.
12: (laughs) When I got home, I decided to look at the message inside the envelope. I figured that if I was going to get my skull cracked, I was entitled to snitch a look, right? The meat of the thing indicated that Set Middlestadt was to look for the collar on Jake. That left me nowhere, Mallard, until I got to thinking about something Rembrandt had seen earlier. It was a cat. A little boy told me the cat's name was Jake. That cat carried vital information in that thing on his collar. Just how vital remains to be seen when you have your boys enlarge that microfilm.
14: You're right. It is incredible, Candy. How about Mrs. Moreland? How did she figure in the deal?
12: The way I get it is this. Moreland and Middlestadt were working together. Moreland had recently finished his formula. He'd been working night and day. That's probably what brought on his fatal heart attack. In his type of work, he trusted no one except Hans Middlestadt, a bad trust, as Middlestadt was probably a foreign agent, here for the express purpose of stealing the formula from Moreland. He became impatient, snatched Mrs. Moreland on her way to get the doctor, and interrogated her in his hotel room. She wouldn't tell him where Moreland kept his records. So, in a frenzy, he choked her to death. And that was when I walked in mm, shortly after.
14: Yeah, could be, Candy, could be. These spy boys are tough cookies.
12: Yes, but not especially smart. If he'd been patient, I'd given him that information willingly, according to Dr. Moreland's dying request. Isn't that irony for you?
14: That's right. Poor dope was built by his own jacanery.
12: As it was, he almost got away with it. If it hadn't been for that car wreck, he'd been off and running back to his comrades.
14: And I use the word deliberately. Well, Candy, I've got to admit, you used your head on this one.
12: I most certainly did. I've still got the lump. (laughs) Come on, Mallard. Knock off for a little while. You can buy a girl a Gibson.
14: A Gibson? Sure,
12: you got one coming. And while we're at it, one big bowl of milk for Jake. Straight. (laughs)
11: Listen again next week at this same time for excitement and adventure, just dial Candy Matson, Yukon 28209. Heard tonight were Ebony Rose as Candy, Joe Martinez as Rembrandt, Dana Consalves as Moreland, Alan Clower as the doctor, Christian Ferris as Mallard, Teddy Giggy as the coroner and the cop. Jessica Matthews as the clerk, Diana De Hoyos as Tommy, and Jerry Ellef as Middlestack. The program was written by Monty Masters and was originally broadcast in 1950 on NBC radio. Tonight's performance was adapted for live performance and directed by Pete Lutz. Dr. Ross Bernhardt was heard at the organ and this is Tamara Merson-Ren speaking. This is the BBS, the Bumbly Broadcasting System. We will pause in our evening's festivities for a 15-minute intermission after this important announcement. Part of
10: our show is brought to you by the Leighton Family Music and Wine Festival. For the 16th year in a row, the Leighton family gathers in scenic Redlawn for five full days of music, comedy, and bacchanalia. Oh. <laughs>
4: That's right, Betty. The Layden Brothers, Aiden, Braden, Caden, Dayden, Graydon, Jaden, Caden, and their sister Maiden Layden, will sing, joke around, and sell their very own special label wine to all comers.
10: Jim, I was listening to your list of the Layden Brothers, and I noticed you said Caden twice.
4: No, Betty, that wasn't Caden twice. That was Caden with a C and Caden with a K. Two completely different brothers.
10: Well, all right, Jim. Thanks for straightening that out. And I understand that all the Laydens are extremely gifted musically, and they all started performing at an early age.
4: Betty, you're right again, and as a special feature, Maiden laden, who is eight months pregnant, will be debuting her unborn child, who is reportedly already a fantastic vocalist.
10: Eight months pregnant, eh? Well, she can't really be called Maiden anymore, can she? What? Never mind, Jim. So anyway, with special events like a singing fetus, there's sure to be lots of trouble finding a parking place. So get there early.
4: We can't stress that enough, Betty. And now let's tell the folks
10: where it is. And when it is, Jim. That's the 16th annual Layden Family Music and Wine Festival next week, starting Sunday.
4: At the Fading Raiders Waiting Plaza in beautiful historic Red Lawn. Don't, Don't miss,
5: miss it! it.
0: Well, a grand applause closes the curtains for our first performance of the Sonic Summerstock Playhouse 2019. Thanks so much to the Narada Radio Company and Pete Lutz for our opening night. Be with us next week as we welcome a new company to the Sonic Summerstock stage, presenting an old favorite. Until then, I'm Jack Ward, and for myself and David Alt, wherever you are, David, thank you and good night.
6: You're listening to the new Mutual Audio Network. Welcome home.
2: The Mutual Audio Network. Listening and imagining together.
15: Hey, Billy, why do you look so down? Aw, Dad, I got a computer, a PlayStation, and a barn full of iguanas, and I'm still bored. (sighs) Gee, Billy, when I was your age... I would read lots of stories in pulp magazines, oh, with stories of weird adventure and fantasy, horror, satire, and lots of action. Wow, that sounds great, Dad. Yeah, I sure wish there was something like that right now. <laughs> there is, Daddy Ho. Who are you? I'm Doctor Mary Von Roxbrocket, host of the Twisted Pulp Radio Hour, and now there's. Twisted Pulp Magazine! (laughs) What's that, Doctor? Why, it is a return to greatness! Available on all your digital devices! That is what it is! Look! Whoa! Dad, this looks awesome! Exciting, and dare I say it, very unwholesome! You definitely have that right, my good man! (laughs) Thanks, Dr. Mary! My pleasure, Billy! And just between you and me, I am not sure that this man is really your father. Bye. Dad? Uh, just read your Twisted Pulp magazine, Billy. Twisted Pulp magazine, available in dark alleyways behind meth labs everywhere, or at digitalvaudeville.com. That is...